you would, uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And as I had already mentioned, um, or has already been stated, there will be a baptism at the end of the, the service, and so this, is, this will segue into that. You may be wondering how in the world I'm going to pull it off, but it will be, it will be done. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll get there in a moment, but I'd like to try to frame this a little bit if I may. Now, there was a great poet and philosopher of the last century, Leonard Skinner, <laughs> said that uh, we ought to be a simple kind of man. You may know something about that, you may not. If you don't, Pastor Joe will close the service out with his rendition of Simple Man. I'm just kidding about that. Just joking. He's probably wondering what in the world. But that is actually a biblical concept, believe it or not, living simply, a simple kind of life. In Acts chapter 2, verse 44, it says, Now all those who believed were together, and they had all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods, and they divided them among all as anyone had need. And so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with uh, gladness and simplicity of heart. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And so that was a description of the early church. It was quite simple. You know, they focused in on a few things. They were serious about the Word of God. They were serious about prayer. They were serious about being together. They were serious about making sure that everybody's needs were taken care of. And it said that when they came together, they enjoyed their food and their fellowship with gladness and simplicity. And they were praising God. And I love this. They had favor with all the people. People around them saw the Christians and the way that they lived and they thought very highly of them. They saw that there was something very special about what was happening there amongst the believers. This uh, simplicity of heart, it, it just means singleness of heart, to, be, to have a single heart, not to have a divided heart, not to be complicated, but to be of one mind, one heart. See, we complicate things, do we not? We complicate things, but as you search the scriptures, you're going to regularly see patterns of simplicity. Patterns of simplicity. And I was already kind of thinking about this. I had this message kind of part, part way put together. And then I, I received um, an email I get regularly from a pastor here in the Bay Area. And he, he does these blogs. He's from Calvary Chapel, Fremont, and uh, Tim Brown. And he put together something that was, I mean, almost identical to what I was talking about. And I thought, okay, Lord, I think this is, you know, loud and clear. I hear you. And uh, this just fits so well into what I was already thinking, and so I just wanted to share this with you, kind of to build upon what I have already said. You know, Tim said this, God wants you to live a simple life. The word simple comes from the Latin word meaning one, meaning one. The word complex, however, on the other side, comes from the Latin word meaning two or more. The Lord knows that life is complex that it is made up of two or more things. That's to put it simply, right? I mean, life is complex. It is made up of many moving parts, is it not? 
He goes on to say, yet at the same time, God desires that you live a simple life. That's God's desire for us, even in the midst of complexity. So how can we live simply in the midst of complexity? Well, we can have a single heart in the midst of a life that has so many moving parts. And what's interesting to me is that there's this phrase that pops up over and over in the Bible. And it is the phrase, one thing. One thing. There was the guy in John chapter 9. He had been born blind. Remember that? And then he encountered Jesus, and Jesus gave him back his sight. And the religious leaders, they didn't like this. They were mad. And so they began to question him. They want to know, who did this? How did you receive your sight? And there was all kinds of confusion going on. And uh, the leaders, they called to the man who was blind and said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner speaking of Jesus, and he answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know, but one thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. It's just that simple. I don't know about all of that, but I know this. I was blind, and now I see. This man knew one thing. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul, he's talking about the fact that God had something for him. There was a reason why God called him, set him apart. And he said he had not attained to this fully. He says, I have not apprehended, but one thing I do, I forget all those things that are behind me, and I reach forward to the things that are ahead. He said, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He had his mind set on one thing. Paul wanted for himself what God wanted for him. And he said, I'm going to press toward the goal. I'm going to forget everything that is behind me. I'm going to forget all of that, and I'm going to press toward the one thing. And that's a word for somebody in here today. You need to let go of what's behind you. See, stuff is complicated because you're all caught up in what has already happened behind you. But that's, that's gone, right? That's gone. And so we need to press towards the one thing, towards the goal, towards Christ. A thousand years earlier in the Old Testament... David said in Psalm 27, 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David said, there's one thing. There's one thing above every other thing that matters to me. That one thing have I desired, that one thing will I seek to dwell in the house of the Lord and to gaze upon his beauty. We know the story well, Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha, remember Jesus came to their house and Martha was stressing out, right? She was serving. Where was Mary? Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet as he was teaching and she was hanging on every word and Martha felt some type of way about that. I learned that from the bridge guys, some type of way. That's not good. And so she did not like this, and she wanted, she wanted Mary to get up and come in there and help her. And Jesus said, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. See, Martha was concerned about many other things, but Mary had zeroed in on the one thing. And that was focusing upon Jesus, sitting at his feet, learning from him, spending time with him. And Jesus said, that's not going to be taken away from her. Mark chapter 10, 
Mark chapter 10, maybe you've heard of the, the rich young ruler. This guy, he comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, you know the law. What does the law say? He names a few of the laws, and the guy says, look, I've kept these from a youth. I'm good. I've done that. And then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross, and follow me. And so Jesus said, there's still one thing. Jesus put his finger on something in the guy's life, covetousness. He said, you need to turn away from that, and you need to turn to me. Take up your cross and follow me. Jesus had to be the most important thing in his life. Jesus had to be the one thing that was worth living for in his life over every other thing. And so, continuing on with what Tim Brown was saying, there was, there's a guy named C.T. Studd. Maybe you've heard that name. Born in 1860, he was a world-famous cricket player. If you look this guy up, we've got some pretty awesome pictures, you know, of, of this guy in action back in the day. And he was saved under the ministry of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody was a world-famous evangelist. And so when he gave his life to Christ, he also gave Christ all of his wealth. And he ended up going to China under Hudson Taylor, another world-famous missionary who went to, uh, to China. Maybe you've heard of him. And while he was over there, he inherited a massive sum of money, C.T. Studd did. You know what he did? He gave it away in 24 hours. 24 hours, he gave it away because he didn't want anything in his hands that would keep him from the one thing God had called him to do. C.T. Studd knew one thing, did one thing, gave up all for the one thing. He thought only one thing was necessary, and he sought that one thing. More than anything else, there is a desperate need for one thing, Christians. May we live a one thing life, a simple life fixed on Christ. Close quote. That's pretty heavy, huh? It's simple. It's God's design that he would be the one thing, that he would be the main thing, and that we would get all of the distractions, all of the confusion, all of the nonsense out, and recalibrate and get back to the main thing, the one thing, to live simply before the Lord. I mean, man, how many of us in here need that? Don't you feel like you need that? We need to just step back, unplug, and cool it just a little bit. See, simplicity does not describe the world that we live in, does it? There is more volatility, divisiveness, anxiety, confusion, and rage in the world than ever. Am I right or am I right? Much of that has made its way into the church. And it's wreaking havoc on the church. And I'm talking about the church at large. Over this last year, more than a year now, it's been amazing to see what has been happening in all the churches everywhere, all, all across the country, even the world. It's, it's really universal. It's been a hard time for the church. And it doesn't look good. It's a bad look to those outside the church. Simplicity does not describe the average Christian these days we got to get off the grid spiritually, so to speak. we got to get off the grid. And so God gives us a simple solution for that in our text today as we look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. You could call this a, a recipe for simplicity. You know, that's just an easy way to look at it. We're we'll talking about living a, a quiet life, a drama-free life. You could call this save the drama for your mama. 
I had a mother tell me, no, don't call it that because I got enough drama. Don't save it for me. Send it somewhere else. And uh, there's really just four things in these two verses that stand out as a recipe for simplicity. Paul says you need to seek to live a quiet life, mind your own business, work to support your needs, and preserve your witness to those who are outside the church. It's just that simple. That really does simplify things, if you ask me. Um, that is what uh, we will see in our text. we got to kill the noise, and in so doing, it will bring much relief to our souls. And let me just say, you know, this is a really kind of a blunt, straightforward text. It just is. And so I just want to start by saying I am not mad. I'm not angry. As I was like putting this together, I just thought this just sounds like it's going to come across like I am mad at somebody. And I'm really not, I promise you. I don't have anybody in mind here. I'm not trying to come after anybody. And so I'm going to try to uh, put a little more love in it maybe than I normally do, or at least on the front end let you know that. Um, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's just all in my head, but when you, when you hear those types of statements in the text, it's kind of hard for it not to probably come across as just blunt or, or straightforward. So that's how the Bible is. It's no nonsense, straightforward, clear cut, and I appreciate that. And so uh, with that, why don't we just look at the text, it's two verses, and uh, why don't you go ahead and stand with me, and I will read this for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, it says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the two points here, first point in verse 11, it's Simplicity and peaceful living. That's what I'm going to call it. Simplicity and peaceful living. Verse 11 says that you also aspire to lead a quiet life and to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. So it says that you also. And so this is a continuation of what we've already been looking at. This first little phrase that you also indicates that uh, this is beyond what has already been said or in addition to. And so if you'll recall, in the beginning of this chapter, we were talking about what makes God happy. Remember that? What makes God happy? Remember some, someone had suggested that it was our happiness? You remember that? that quote I read to you? Someone said, what God really wants is for us to be happy, and that makes him happy. And I, I argued that, and I said, I don't think so. I think what makes God happy is our holiness. And that's exactly what this text starts out with. That is what pleases God, a holy life. And then Paul begins to unfold for us what that holiness looks like. And first it was sanctification regarding sexual purity, that we would be moral in that area, that we would be pure. Then he goes on to say that we ought to abound in brotherly love, brotherly kindness, just overflowing with love. That ought to be something that is so true of the church of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to move on beyond that, and he's going to continue to build upon that foundation. And the next thing Paul says we ought to do is aspire to lead a quiet life. Now, this means the absence of external disturbances, to be still, to be silent, to cease from altercation. That's what that means, quiet. 
And so it's, it's easy to see that it's, I would say, synonymous with peace, living a peaceful life, being a peaceful person, the absence of external disturbance, ceasing from altercation. And Paul says that we're to lead this. You are to lead a quiet life. You know what that means? That means you cannot be passive in this. That means it is on you. It's up to me. It's our job to lead ourselves, to lead our hearts, to lead our minds. Do not allow ourselves to be led. We have to purpose to resist getting caught up in drama. It's easy to get caught up, isn't it? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't take really any effort whatsoever. Most of us really kind of keep ourselves in a prime position to get mad, to get caught up in what is going on all around us. And so if there's something that sets you off, if there's something that leads to you not being peaceable or having a quiet life, or there's something that accelerates altercation or external disturbance in your life, then you got to get that out. you got to get rid of that. you got to remove yourself from it to the best of your ability. And this is something that I am actively involved in in my own life. I know there are certain things that get me upset going on in the world today. I think we can all relate with that, you know. And so there are, are a lot of things going on out there around us that I don't like. Um, but the reality is the more that I'm watching and listening and talking about it, I find it just gets, gets me riled up. Riled. Right? And so I have to do something about that. So I'm regularly trying to purge myself, purge my brain from the kinds of things that get me riled up and replace it with things that actually soothe the soul and fill my spirit, things of the Lord, worship music, whatever, you know, something that's going to actually uh, cultivate this kind of peace in my life, not something that's going to start a fire and explode, right? You know, we're going to see and hear things that anger us. We are made in the image of God. And a part of that is God is a God of justice. And so when we see things that are unjust, there's something in us that gets mad, and we don't like it. And so that in and of itself is not a bad thing. And as long as we are living in this world, there's just going to be some of that, okay? But don't immerse yourself in stuff that gets your blood boiling. And I think we do. We do this a lot, especially when it comes to you know, social media and, and all of these other things that are so readily available that we are attached to. Um, and so I, I had a, heard a pastor recently talking about the struggles for pastors, because I have about an hour of your time each week, but many people spend about 30 to 40 hours watching things on TV, listening to podcasts, watching news, and uh, outlets, other things like that online. And so you've come in here with about 40 hours of that in your brain and in your heart, and I've got one hour to try to interject biblical balance back into that. And so... I'm fighting at a disadvantage here. You know what I mean? And that's just the world that we live in right now. And so we've got to get some balance there. We've got to get some balance there if we want to be able to lead quiet, peaceable lives free of altercation and external disturbance. We have to immerse ourselves in the things that are going to lead us to holiness and gentleness and Christ-likeness. 
And it says that we have to aspire, aspire to lead a quiet life. This is actually kind of a play on words here. It's an interesting statement. It's like saying, make it your ambition to have no ambition. It's like saying, seek restlessly to be still. Or like, hurry up and slow down. That's kind of uh, the way that this sentence is structured, which is kind of interesting to me. But he's basically saying, like, make every effort. Give it all that you have got. Fight with all of your might to live a drama-free life. All right? Now, before I came to Christ... Drama was all that I knew. Maybe you can relate to that. I mean, that was all I knew. It found me everywhere I went. But honestly, it was more like I found it. You know, and that, that was my life. You know, and I'll just take a moment to try to draw a picture of what that could look like at any given day. You know, I remember when I was like 19. This was a couple years before I came to the Lord. I was working at Jack in the Box. And uh, night shift, many crazy things happen at night shift, uh, Jack in the Box. And I had to work um, New Year's Eve, which I was already pretty mad about. And so it was like early in the morning. As soon as someone pulls up to the drive-thru, there's a ding in the headset, and you can hear what's, what's going on out there. And so this guy pulls up and just goes, hey! Like he had been waiting there for, you know, 10 minutes or something. And so I just had no tolerance for that, and I told him to get out of the drive-thru with some other choice words. And so um, that just accelerated the whole thing. Well, we had a, um, a maintenance man that would come in every morning about 4.30, 5 o'clock, and his name was Beanie. And Beanie had a little bit of a drinking problem, and Beanie was back in the, you know, there's like two windows in the drive-thru, and the first window had all the maintenance supplies, so he's back there kind of getting his stuff, and he looks up, and that car is right there, and the guy's like pointing at him and gesturing and cussing, so Beanie looks at him and kind of nods, and he comes up to me, he said, Rob, let's go out there. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, I don't know, and I'll never forget it. He said, you ain't scared, is you? I was like, well, now we got to go. And so I, I got, you know, I got my apron on, and I got this grill scraper, and I'm out here. We go out the front door, and we come around the building, and I'm like, it's on now. And it just so happens that there's a car full of guys. And I'm like, great, we didn't think this one through. And so <laughs> the guy jumps out of, the, out of the driver's side and accuses me of, you know, whatever. And I kind of barked back, and, man, it just de-escalated. He's like, I'm sorry. And I was like, well, I didn't see that coming. He's like, I'm, I'm drunk. And Beanie said, I'm drunk too. That ain't no excuse. <laughs> and, you know, it just, fortunately, it just de-escalated as fast as it got started. And I was like, oh, thank you. And so we went back inside, and it was all fine. But that was just a snapshot of, like, any given moment in my life. And it was like that at work. It would be like that with my friends and it was certainly like that even with my, my family, you know. Um, I went to U-Turn for Christ when I was like 21, faith-based recovery program. I came to know Christ there very shortly, like day two. And so after some time, you can uh, have a home pass. So I went back to my grandma's and all my family's together, and I'm sitting out there. We're having a good time, and all of a sudden, two of my uncles start talking, and one offends the other, and the other one... My road is actually called Rainy Road. It's named after my family because much of my family lived there. So my uncle's like, 
forget this, I'm going to go get my gun. And so he goes to get his gun, and everyone jumps in their cars and scatters. And I'm just sitting there thinking, it's good to be home. <laughs> good to be home. I remember this, you know, and it was a real eye-opener that uh, I, wasn't, I didn't live like that anymore. That was not my heart. That was not my desire. But I had been basically airdropped right back down into the drama and it was like, this is all bad. I don't like this. And the reality is God had begun to radically change me from the inside out. I was being transformed. I had come to the saving knowledge of Jesus, and he gave me a new heart. And he gave me a new, a new desire, a new way of living. And it did not involve all of that at all. And I was now around other Christians who didn't want any of that. And Things got a lot more quiet. Things got a lot more peaceful. Things got a lot more productive. And to go back and be around my family and, and folks from the old life and to see that nothing had changed, not, not even a little bit. And uh, that was a real eye-opener because the reality is <clears throat> I had been transformed by the gospel of peace. That's what it's called. Ephesians 6.15 It's the gospel of peace. Because through the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, I have been made at peace with God. See, I was an enemy of God. In my sin, I was a rebel, and I had trespassed against God's goodness. I had broken his law. And Jesus came and paid that penalty that I owed. In his righteous life and death upon the cross, on my behalf, when I trusted Christ, in, in, in my place, he died, he lived and died for me. That brought me into a place of peace with God. So this God who was a judge against me was now my father, and I had peace with God. And that's what the gospel of peace will do for you. It's what it did for me. I had been saved by the Lord of peace, 2 Thessalonians 3.16. It says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. I had received the peace of God, Philippians 4, 7, that this is a peace that surpasses all understanding, and it will guard your hearts and your minds. The world doesn't know anything about this peace. This is a peace beyond anything that we've ever known. It is the peace of God that comes from the Lord of peace that is ours because of the gospel of peace. And no wonder Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. And so we look at, we need look no further than Jesus Christ himself. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoking flax he will not quench. And this is to say he's gentle. You know, a, a reed that, you know, you go down a river and along the riverbed you have all the, the tall grass swaying in the wind. You have a, a reed that is maybe bent or broken and it's just kind of hanging there. Uh, it says that Jesus is not going to just uproot that, tear it out, you know. Uh, a, a candle, a, uh, a smoldering flax, we don't probably usually call it that, but you know what that is. When a candle goes out in the wick, there's just a spark on the tip of it. Jesus is going to fan that into a flame. So that's us. He doesn't just come along and snuff it out. Jesus is gentle. And Jesus said of himself in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you what? Rest. I will give you rest. 
He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, Jesus is gentle. His, his burden, it is no burden at all. It's light. It's gentle. But ours, on the other hand, it's quite different. So we will break a bruised reed. We will quench a smoldering flax. We will put an immense burden on other people. And that just should not be because we have been saved by the Prince of Peace. We have received the uh, peace of God. So then it follows that we should be that kind of people, right? We should be marked by peace. We should be those who deal graciously with each other as our Lord has dealt with us, right? Amen? Are you with me? Does somebody testify? All right, come on now. Colossians chapter 3 Colossians chapter 3 spells this out for us so beautifully. In Colossians 3, verse 12, it says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, there it is, holy, we have been chosen by God, we've been sanctified by God, we've been set apart, we've been made holy, and we are the beloved of God. He says, Put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering. We are to put these on. This should describe us. Verse 13, he says, Bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, you also must do. There ought to be all kinds of forgiveness happening in this place. We're going to step on each other's feet. It's just going to happen. We're going to offend each other. You know what? We forgive. We forgive gently, lovingly. We don't just bail. We don't say, you know what? I've been offended. I'm out of here. Uh, we don't turn against each other. We forgive one another as we have been forgiven in Christ. Verse 14, he says, But above all these things put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. That word rule is, uh, it speaks of an, an umpire. You know, he's calling the shots, essentially. And so... The, uh, the peace of God is to be that for us in our hearts, in the church. Let the peace of God rule, to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. So we ought to be a people of gratitude and thanksgiving. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. We ought to be encouraging, instructing, counseling, singing uh, here corporately with grace in our hearts. And he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, that's, that's the kind of life that God would have us live. That's a very peaceful, that's a very gentle, that's a very gracious description, is it not? That ought to be true of every single Christian. That ought to be true of the church of Jesus Christ because that is our Lord. Is that not our Lord? Does that not describe him perfectly? And so then it follows that we've received this kind of grace, love, and treatment. We ought to be marked by it, and we ought to extend it to one another. That's what you know, living a quiet and a peaceful life looks like. It looks a lot like that. Now, we know this does not describe the world that we live in, right? This doesn't describe the world that we live in at all. The world today is in more turmoil than ever do you think that it is an overstatement to say that it seems like the world is on fire 
I mean, and it's just getting crazier all the time, is it not? And so the church, in the midst of that, ought to be an oasis where the peace of God rules. There's something special about the church. There's something that is attractive about the church because there is simplicity, there's grace, it's quiet, there's peace, there's love there. But you know, many Christians have succumbed to the insanity of the world. And there's all kinds of Christian drama going on, right? All kinds of Christian drama. I can't believe what I have seen happen amongst Christians in the last year and a half. Not here, not just here. All the churches in Napa, all the churches in the Bay Area, all the churches across the country from different pastors that I have interacted with, as I hear of the factions and the divisions and the offenses and the reactions one to another and all of this, it boggles the mind. What's our excuse? You know, I think about my past there, that story I told you. I was a 19-year-old drug addict, right? What excuse do we have now? What, what is our excuse for that same kind of behavior and that drama? But might I just say that it, it's far more petty. The stuff that, that oftentimes we hear about and see in the church, it's petty. And so what's, what's our excuse? And so when we are offending other people and being offended all the time so very easily over silly stuff, how does that make us any different than the world? Exactly. And so remember, this goes back to the context. Remember we, we were talking about holiness? And holiness is being different. It's being unique. It's being distinct. And so Paul said that we ought to be that way in sexual purity, not like the pagan culture all around us. We ought to be like that in brotherly love. And now he says that we ought to be like that by living at peace one with another. We should be distinct. We should be different. If we're bickering and fighting and dividing like the world is, then what's the difference? We're not shining as a light in this dark world. We've got to be mindful of that. And so Paul kind of gives some practical steps on how to live a disturbance-free life. So I think starting with recognizing that we need to lead a quiet life, we've got to make every effort to do it, we've got to fight for it, we need to know why it is so very important. We need to recognize when it's not happening, when we're not live, living quiet lives, when there's all kinds of craziness and drama going on in our lives and the church. And we need to seek to try to do something about that. Kill the noise. Take a step back. Unplug for a minute. Recalibrate. And one thing Paul says would go a long way. He says, mind your own business. Can I get an Amen. Mind your own business. Man, the Bible is just straightforward. Straightforward. Mind your own business. Stay out of other people's affairs. Stay out of other people's affairs. See, we are constantly in other people's business. Constantly. For many reasons. Not least of which, social media. Right? Because people are all too happy to put their business out there. Look at me, look at me, look at everything I'm doing. And they want to put their best face forward. They want to make it look like their life is just full of adventure, full of luxury, full of happiness, full of all these things. It's, it's really a facade, but you're, you're comparing your insides with somebody else's outsides. Like, you know really where you're at 
what your life is like, where your heart is, but then you're looking at somebody else's appearance that they're putting out there for you, and then you think, oh man, I just don't, I'm not that, I don't have that, I don't measure up to that, and it's, it's depressing. So number one, just getting out of their business in that regard will help you tremendously. It will kill a lot of that anxiety and discouragement and not measuring up, just detaching from that because people are all too eager to put their business out there for you, and so it'll be really easy for you to want to get into other people's business. And everybody is a self-proclaimed expert. They know everything there is to know about whatever it is they've chosen to kind of put themselves forward as. And, you know, it's just a, you know, it's just, it's a mess. And so we, we want to actually get out of people's business, stay out of their affairs, Stop worrying about what other people are doing. I mean, this is medicine for the soul. Stop worrying about what other people are doing or not doing. Now, there's a balance here because as Christians, we're supposed to walk hand in hand with each other. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to hold each other accountable. And so there certainly is that. But we have to be able to discern the difference between that and just being in other people's business and worrying about what other people are doing. Look, I think... We're all just trying to make it in here, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but are we just trying to get by? Are we just trying to be faithful? Are we just trying to do the best that we can do in life? And so we need to let people do that. Let people do that and stop trying to get in people's business and get mad at them because they didn't do this thing that I thought they should be doing or, or vice versa. And there's been a lot of that going on in the church you know, everybody seems to know how everybody else ought to act. You ever notice that? In life, everybody knows well how other people ought to act. I've also, I've just noticed this for years. Whether I'm working in a small business, all my coworkers, they know exactly how that business ought to be ran much better than the owner of the company. I mean, they just got a long list of suggestions, and they have great authority. They know what they would do if they were running this company, and they would take it to the next level. Oh, it would be a Fortune 500 company then, right? That, and that, that's how we are. I've seen, we know that, I mean, many people know how to run the government, right? I mean, you know what you would do if you had a shot to be the mayor or the governor or the president or whatever, right? I mean, we've we got some real experts in the world all around us. And so uh, churches, it's the same thing. You know, people oftentimes have a lot of ideas and perspectives about things that ought to be being done a better way or a different way. And the reality is, is that, and this is all of us, we are looking on the, from the outside in and we're seeing little slivers of the pie. We don't even understand the half of what all actually goes into these things. And so we fixate on one little thing and say, I could do that better. Can't they see that? If they would just do that better, then it would just, you know, and we, we tend to think that we know. We've got it all figured out. And so that just comes, that's by nature. This is what we all do. And so we have to be aware of this. And so people also think, they know how other Christians ought to act. And this is what is called legalism because oftentimes it's application. Like there are times when we know people are struggling in sin and they are, they are sinning against God and God's word. I know when I'm there, you know when you're there, we know that. But sometimes we come up with little personal applications for what we think uh, the Bible says and then we want to try to mandate that on other people. 
And so, you know, I'll just be straight with you. The mask thing. The mask thing has been one of the biggest explosions in the church over the last year, year and a half. Because you got a group of people who said, look, this is what loving your neighbor looks like. And that's the banner under which they have marched. Love thy neighbor, wear a mask. And then that's their application to that verse. And so if you don't wear the mask, you're not loving your neighbor. Then you got other people who disagree for whatever reason with the science or the, the thought, thinking behind it. They feel like it encroaches upon uh, you know, freedoms, what have you. I'm not getting on either side of this. I'm just kind of giving you an illustration or an example. And then they get mad at each other because the other side is not doing what they have deemed as the right thing to do. And that is legalism is what it is. This is a rule. This is, this is gospel. You need to do it. I'm doing it. You're not doing it. And, you know, whatever way you look at it. And, and we, we can do this in so many different ways, right? Well, you know, Romans 14.4 says, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. So we, we really have to take a step back and recognize that people are free to do what they're going to do, and they have to answer to God. They do not answer to me. I did not die for you. I didn't shed my blood for you. I didn't save you. And so ultimately, you have to answer to the Lord, not me. Does that make sense? And we have to give each other that grace. We have to give each other that freedom. You're not my servant, and I'm not your master. I'm not your king. I'm not your Lord. And so I can't treat you as though you need to measure up to what are my, what are my standards and rules, if you will. And so we have to do a lot more looking inward. We have to consider that we have to answer to the Lord, and we got a lot of work to do, don't we? Is it just me? Do you got a lot of work to do? We got a lot of work to do. And so we got to recognize that we have to answer to the Lord for what God has called us to. And if we would just take and look inwardly and start focusing on that, that would save us a lot of stress and anxiety and, and all of that mess because we got enough going on with ourselves. And Paul talks about this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Let a man consider us servants. Now, this is the only time in the New Testament this word servant is found many times, but this is a unique word. It's under rower. It's huperetes in the Greek, and it is the person that is at the bottom of a battleship rowing. Uh, and usually those were people that were sentenced to death by, by Rome, and they're down there in the bottom of that ship, and they're rowing, and they're going to die there. That's a life sentence. And Paul uses that word for himself. I am a servant. I am an under rower. Nothing special about me. I have no rights. I'm not looking for glory. Man, that's as low as it goes right there. And that's who I am. That's what I am. I'm a servant. I'm a servant. Nothing more. And he says, moreover, it's required of a steward that one be found faithful. I'm someone whom God has, has entrusted valuable things to. And so are you. If you know Christ, then God has entrusted something very special to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ. He's given you giftings. He has equipped you to serve him. And you've got to answer one day to the Lord for how you used those things. What did you do with the gospel message? What did you do with the saved life that he gave you? What did you do with the giftings that he gave you to serve him with? So you're going to have to answer to him for that one day. And Paul says it is required of that person that they be found faithful at the end. 
So that's what it boils down to. We have all kinds of markers for success here in the world that we're constantly trying to filter things through. Success is, well done. You were faithful. If you stood before the Lord today, do you think he would say that to you? Are you very busy worrying about other people? Because you're the one that's going to have to stand before the Lord one day. I am too. We all are. And Paul says, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. He who judges me is the Lord. Paul, do you hear what he's saying here? He's like, you know, I have to answer to the Lord. I am a servant to him. I'm not worried about being judged by any of you. And he says, I can't even judge myself because I can't even trust my own judgment. I can't even trust my own judgment against myself. And so we got to stop judging each other. And frankly, we can't even judge ourselves aright. And he says, therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the heart. Then each one's praise will come from God. So Paul says we're servants, we're under rowers, we're stewards. God has entrusted something special to us, and he's the one that we're going to answer to one day, and he's the one who will truly be able to judge in righteousness. We can't judge each other rightly, and we can't even judge ourselves because we can't even see the, the depth of our own depravity, our own hearts. And so he says we will stand before the righteous judge, and our praise will come from him. And so that's what's at the core of this, right? If we want to live a quiet, peaceful life, mind our own business, we've got to start looking inwardly and recognizing we're going to stand before the Lord one day and we're going to have to give an account. There's nobody else going to be standing there. You're not going to be able to blame somebody else or point someone else and say, well, but look at what they did or didn't do. He's going to say, what did you do? You with me? Does this make sense? All right, so that's minding our own business. Now, furthermore... I would say that when we are overly fixated on what other people are doing, you know what that's called? That's pride. That's pride. Because you've decided you know how things ought to be. And you know how other people ought to do it. That's what that is. It's pride. And uh, people that are fixated on what everybody else is doing wrong, oftentimes they rarely recognize their own issues. People that, that do this fail to see their own glaring sins and issues. And that's how pride is. That's how pride is. People are completely blind to the fact that they are prideful. And so I'm like, God, search me, show me. Am I, am I full of pride? Because we won't know it when we are. We won't see it. We're going to be blind to our own pride, and we're going to be blind to our own sin. And so... That's something that we have to be careful about. This is, I think, the root of constantly minding other people's affairs and standing in judgment of what other people do or don't do. It's pride. You know, we talk about sin a lot, and we talk about, you know, we, we kind of have a list, I think, often. I'm talking generally here of what we think is bad and what God thinks is, is bad. But how often do we talk about pride? Because God hates pride. God is disgusted by pride. It's heinous. Tim Challies, he says, is there any trait more deceptive? Is there any vice easier to see in others but harder to see in ourselves? We despise its presence in them but defend its presence in us. 
It is the ugly trait of pride, one of a number of traits which God has a special disgust. And he references Proverbs 6, 16, where it says, These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. And the first thing on the list, it's a proud look. And some, some scriptures, uh, uh, translations translate it haughty eyes. And Tim Chiley says, heading up the list of these seven deadly sins is haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are an arrogant man's windows to the world. From the lofty perch of his own superiority, he uses them to look down upon others. From his self-made pedestal, he fancies he can see with greater clarity than his creator. creator. It's pride. I would add to that with greater clarity than anyone else either. Right? And that's the ugliness of pride. And you know what James 4, 6 says? God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I want to be a humble person, don't you? You know what it is to resist? It's to stand opposite of. So you're trying to, you're trying to get somewhere, but somebody's standing on the other side of you, and they're not letting you. You're being opposed. And God opposes the proud. You're not going to get anywhere. God stands opposite of you if you are prideful. That's crazy to think, isn't it? You ever thought of it that, that way? That's the idea. And so humility. We want to be a church where we are striving for peaceful lives, ceasing from altercation, being gentle and gracious with one another, really minding our own business, not standing in judgment of other people, knowing that we have to answer to the Lord one day, and so we have to take a close look at ourselves. Striving not to be a people who are blinded by pride, but a people who are confessing our sins to the Lord and seeking to be humble people, humble people. That's what, that's what quiet life is. It's meekness. It's humility. It's what we're to strive to be. And then Paul goes on. He says that you must work with your hands. Work with your hands. And so this is the next step. He says, so seek to be, live a quiet life, mind your own business, Work with your own hands. This is self-sufficiency. It's faithfully managing your own responsibilities. Some have suggested that this, is, uh, this has to do with the rapture, because Paul talked a lot about the rapture of the church. And so some people hearing that may have thought, well, God's coming back. I don't need to work. Right? That's convenient, isn't it? The Lord is coming back, so I can just shirk on my responsibilities. Let somebody else take care of it. And so that may be what's going on here. Paul says you cannot do that. You must work with your own hands. So the Bible tells us we're supposed to live like the Lord is coming back today. So that means we're ready, we're prepared, but we're supposed to live like the Lord may not even come back in our lifetime. We're supposed to invest and be faithful and serve while he is away. So the master's return could be today. It could be long delayed. We have to be prepared in either case. And so Paul says you must work with your own hands. Some have suggested that this was kind of a pushback against Greek culture, which said it's beneath me to work with my hands. That's, you know, we don't, we don't do that. That's not dignified. And so Paul says, no, 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 you're going to work. You're going to handle your own responsibilities, and you're going to work with your own hands. It's not beneath you to work hard. God has given us work. That was God instituted and blessed work before the curse came in the garden. God created the garden. He put Adam in it, said, tend the garden. 
That was his command to work. God is glorified. God is honored. God is pleased by hard work. Some people think work is a, a result of the curse. Not so. And so Paul says you've got to be someone who works, who works hard, works with your own hands. Each person has a responsibility to shoulder their own burden. That's what Galatians 6 says. It says, for each shall bear his own load. We can't count on everybody else to carry our load for us. We have to take personal responsibility. This doesn't mean that we don't rely on other people at times. There are times where we as the church have to take care of one another. In that same text, Paul says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So it's both, right? But we have to step up to the plate and we have to be self-sufficient. See, ultimately the idea here of quiet living is minding your own business uh, excuse me, the idea of it's quiet living, minding your own business, self-sufficiency. This is directed to the corporate church as a witness to those outside the church. That's what this is all about. And that's what we see in the next verse. And I'm wrapping this up mad fast at this point. I'm sorry. Point number two, the outcome of peaceful living. So what's the outcome of all of this? Verse 12, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. So this is just practical stuff here. Paul says that if you do this, if you work with your own hands, you're going to have what you need. You're going to have your necessities. This is just good practical wisdom. You work hard. You supply for yourself. You're going to have what you need. You're not going to look like a lazy mooch to those outside the church, right? There was probably some of that going on because the church was a very benevolent place. The people were literally selling their goods to take care of each other. You don't think some people got in on that? And said, hey, I got needs. Paul says, that's all well and good, but you need to first and foremost do your part. Bear your own load. And then if it still doesn't work out, then the church is there to help you. And so Paul is essentially saying, don't just expect that your necessities are going to magically appear. We do that sometimes, I think. And so God has said he would provide for us, but we got to put in the work, right? He says, don't act as though you're too good to do <clears throat> whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And then he says, all this for this reason, that you may walk properly. That you may walk properly. This is to live in a way that is becoming or decorously or attractive. We are to live attractive lives to those outside the church. We are to be a light in the dark world. And look, I, I remember when I was an unbeliever, to this day, I remember Christians when I was an unbeliever who just impacted me and in very powerful ways. I remember looking at, I mean, one guy in particular, I'll never forget, I just remember thinking I would give anything in, in the world to be like that guy, because I just knew, I knew what, who I was and what I was like, and I saw this, this guy, and I just thought the world of him, and that's the idea. See, that's, that's, that's the goal. That's what God wants for us. That's what he wants from us. He wants us to do these things so that we are attractive to the world, because of our Christian identity, because of our virtue, because of how we love one another and serve one another. We're ambassadors of Christ. We're supposed to actually care about how we carry ourselves, how we appear to those outside the church. It seems that many of us have given up on this. This is not a priority anymore. We're willing to act any kind of way in the church and outside the church with little regard as to what those outside the church think or how they perceive uh, our Christian witness, right? And so the unbelievers in your life, would they come to you when stuff falls apart? 
Because people, as much as they hate God or, or the things of God, if they know you're a Christian, you're, they're going to come to you when the bottom falls out. They're going to want you to pray for them. It's amazing how that works. And I think many of us have experienced this. And we have to preserve that. Don't you want to be there when that time comes? Don't you want to be that guy or that girl that that person is going to come to? And so we need to be mindful about that kind of stuff. We need to be working to maintain our testimony outside the church, in the community. See, we've got to recalibrate. We've got to get back. We've gotten, somehow we've got way out there. We've got to pull it back in. We've got to get back to the main thing, the one thing, Jesus Christ. That is, we must know him and make him known. It's really just that simple. That's, that's, that is what we are to be about. And it's about what we're celebrating today. It's about what we're about to see right here. You know, I, I look at all the, the petty drama and all the craziness and all the offenses and offending and, and people leaving and splitting and all of this stuff going on, and then I look at someone who is snatched out of the flames of hell. I see a life that is saved. I see a life that is restored. I see relationships that are healed. I see a brand new purpose, a, pra- a brand new trajectory for life, and I think that is what it's about, isn't it? Isn't that what it's about? And that's what we're going to see right now. That's what we're seeing in our brother Spencer, Spencer Christian. It's his name. And that's uh, very fitting. And so seeing people come from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, seeing people be immersed into Christ Jesus, immersed into, baptized into a brand new life, and living, getting, coming out of all that drama that I talked about earlier and coming into a new life, coming into a life of peace, coming into a life of, of service and surrender to Jesus, the baptized life. Romans 6.3 talks about this. It says, Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were taken down into the grave, folks. When you trusted Christ, that old you... That old man, that old woman, they died with Jesus. We went down into the grave. Verse 4, therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should walk into the newness of life. We've all experienced that if you know Christ Jesus. You have died with him and you have risen again into new life. And that's what the waters of baptism represent. It's a grave. You go down into that grave and you come up as a new person in Christ, brand new. You are publicly identifying with Christ to the world. I have decided to follow Jesus, and this world has nothing for me, and there's no turning back. And I want to go all the way in. Amen? We're going to go all the way in. It's, it's fully immersed. And Spurgeon, I'll close with this quote. He says, in the ark of salvation we find a lower and a second and a third story. All are in the ark, but not all are in the same story. Most Christians are only up to their ankles in the river of experience. Some have waited till the stream is up to their knees, and few find the water up to their shoulders, but a very few find it a river to swim in, the bottom of which they cannot touch. Not many Christians find this. Not many Christians go all the way in. Not many Christians experience the fullness of what Christ has for them. I don't know about you, I want it all. And I don't, I'm not going to stop till I have it all. And that's what we are celebrating today. We're rising above all that nonsense. We're killing the noise. 
and we're seeing what matters the most. We're seeing a person who came to Christ, who was saved, and who is identifying before us all this decision that he's made, and it's what we live for, is it not?